Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone. This is Michael Hatton, and this is our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time, we read the harrowing tale of the rape of Tamar by Amnon. We explored the connections between that deed and David's own crime with Bathsheba. We spoke about Amnon's subsequent murder at the hands of Avshalom, his half-brother, after David refused to punish Amnon for his crime, and how, of course, that paralleled the killing of Uriah by David himself, or as Rabbi David Kimchi put it, essentially the crime of David was composed of two components, a sexual violence component and a killing or murder component, and these now return to haunt David through the rape of Tamar, his daughter, and the killing of Amnon, his son. And last time we noted as well how David, while not complicit, was nevertheless instrumental in the chain of events, having asked Tamar to visit Amnon, who feigned illness, and thus put her in his clutches, as well as having allowed Amnon to attend the sheep shearing arranged by Avshalom, such that Avshalom came about to kill him. So no doubt, David is feeling the weight of these events and his own role in bringing them about, even as the words of Natan continue to reverberate and to echo in his ears. The chapter ended with Amnon dead, with Avshalom having fled going into exile, seeking refuge from his grandfather, Talmai, the king of Geshur, and there he remained for three years. Chapter 13 ended with a note of longing. David yearned for Avshalom, having been comforted over the death of Amnon, for he was dead. Chapter 14 introduces us to the next stage in the drama of Shalom restored to Jerusalem through the agency of Yoav, David's trusted general, but absolutely through an indirect strategy. The chapter relates that Yoav sought out a wise woman from Tekoa, Isha Chachama, and he essentially gives her some sort of a story, and she will take that story and rework it and turn it into a drama which, we, which she shall perform before the king in order to convey a message. It is not the case that in ancient Israel there was anything resembling Greek drama. However, it is clear from this particular passage that there were people in ancient Israel that did dramatize stories in order to drive home a message to their listeners. Yoav 
selects this woman from Tekoa, the wise woman, and she approaches David as if she is a widow in mourning whose husband has died, and this is what she says. She falls to the ground and prostrates herself, and she says, Hoshia HaMelech, King, save me. It was, of course, the case that in ancient Israel, people who had some sort of a problem or some sort of a claim could seek redress through an audience with the king, and that seems to be what is happening here as if David is a judge and David is a savior who will help her in the difficult situation in which she finds herself. She reports the following, I had two sons, they both went out to the field and there was no one else around and one struck the other one and killed him. The family has now risen against your maidservant, she says to the king, and they have demanded that I return, that I turn over the remaining son who killed his brother, such that we might kill him, they say. In so doing, the woman says, they will destroy any hope for my future. The one who would inherit will be no more, and the coal, the fire, the glowing ember that remains of my family will be extinguished, including any sort of memory or future for my dead husband. What shall I do? Effectively, the woman presents herself as a widow bereft of her husband. Her two sons fight each other. One kills the other one. And she exclaims, if the family now rises to kill my remaining son, I will be left with nothing at all. Of course, this points to a practice in ancient Israel called redemption, Goel Hadam, redemption of the blood, which is to say, when there is a death even if that death was unintentional. There is an idea of avenging the blood, but the Torah ruled out the practice before the court weighs in on the situation and determines that, in fact, the killer is guilty. And what she fears is that the family will take action without the authority to do so. David responds, go home to your house and I will command upon you such that you will be safe. But she is not convinced. And she repeats it once again. I'm afraid that in fact, the family will kill my son. And David tells her, reassuring her, not the case. If anyone threatens you, bring him to me so that he will not touch you. But she says once again, perhaps indicating that as a widow, it's not very likely that she's going to be able to bring some sort of a threatening relative before the king. How can I be sure that the Avengers will not destroy my son? And finally, the king utters an oath in verse number 11, Chai Hashem, by the life of God, if one of his hairs falls to the ground, it will not happen. I will not allow harm to come to your remaining son. So in this sketch, the woman presented a story. David, in fact, supported her, but that wasn't enough. And she said it again and again, two times, so that David's reassurance was absolutely ironclad. David says, I am fully committing myself and the authority of my office to ensuring that your remaining son does not come to harm. 
And now the woman reveals that in fact, everything that she had presented to David as her story was simply some sort of a parable. And in fact, the story is not about her at all, but about the king of Israel himself. As she puts it, the time has come for the king to restore the one that has been driven out. We are all mortal, she says, like water poured on the ground, which cannot be gathered up. There will not be any sort of reprieve. God will not relent. Everyone will die. And therefore the time has come, she says, to do the work that has to be done just as you spoke of saving my son from those that rose up to kill him, so too you must now save your own son of Shalom from a future of extinction. The king immediately recognizes that the woman has been sent and he identifies the sender. Is it Yoav who has instructed you to share this parable with me? And she says, yes. It was in fact Yoav, and in your wisdom, you recognize that. The king now turns to Yoav, and he allows him permission to restore Avshalom to Jerusalem. Yoav falls to his face and bows. He blesses the king. Now your servant knows that I have found favor in your eyes because you have fulfilled the word of your servant, Yoav, goes to Geshur, and he restores of Shalom to Yerushalayim. But David says, let him turn to his own home. He will not see my face. And of Shalom returns to his house in Jerusalem, but he does not see his father, the king. In effect, what we have here is some sort of a response to the events of the killing of Amnon, even as Avshalom went into exile, distance from his father's favor. The text had reported at the end of chapter 13 that it was, in fact, the king who yearned for Avshalom's return. But it takes Yoav's machinations through the words of the wise woman to bring David to the realization that Avshalom must be restored. Obviously, this particular parable reminds us of the parable that Natan offered the king at the time when he spoke of the rich man, the poor man, and the little lamb. And once again, the king had pronounced sentence as he did in that parable of Natan, not realizing that he was, in fact, speaking about himself. And this is a technique in the court of David, such that David comes to the realization by being offered some sort of a parable which turns out actually to be about him. I would like to point out Yoav's central rule in the restoration of Avshalom. I would like to suggest that there is another parallel here Although Yoav might be thinking that what he is doing is in the interests of David and in the interests of the kingdom, little does he realize or does he that in fact he is now setting the stage for insurrection with Avshalom's return. 
But of course, we recall Yoav's instrumental role in the story of Batsheva and Uriah when he received the orders from the king delivered by Uriah himself. Yoav placed Uriah at the front such that he was struck down by the Ammonites and died. And as it were, Yoav will now unleash the rebellion that will unseat David once again. It is a clear parallel what the rabbis would have referred to as midah, keneged midah, measure for measure, what David meted out and what Yoav unleashed will now return to haunt David, and once again, Yoav will be instrumental in the process. But why is it that Yoav wants Avshalom to return so badly? And here I think we return to the parable and we might get a sense of what actually is happening. The parable was about a widow, and the widow had two, two sons, and one son killed the other son. And there was a demand that the killer be put to death, but that would have left no future for the widow. And of course, all of this is a potent echo of the story of Cain and Abel, Cain and Hevel, reported in chapter four of Sefer Bereshit. Remember, two brothers that fought in the field and one arose upon the other and he killed him. And as for the other, God showed compassion. To destroy Cain would have destroyed humanity because the third son of Adam and Eve, Seth, Shet, was not yet born. So in effect, instead of killing, Cain was driven into exile and there he remained a wanderer, but nevertheless a recipient of divine compassion. And effectively, the wise woman wants to suggest a similar sentence for Avshalom. Avshalom killed his brother, it is true. Avshalom was driven into exile and effectively has suffered the consequences of the crime. And to destroy Avshalom, the implication is, will destroy the future. I'd like to suggest that the image of a widow is symbolic. There are moments in the Hebrew Bible when the people of Israel are compared to a widow bereft of her husband, especially in Megillat Echa or Lamentations, Jerusalem destroyed like a widow bereft of her husband. And perhaps the implication is she represents the people of Israel. Amnon, the crown prince, is dead. That cannot be changed. But the one who is most suited to lead the people of Israel into the future actually is of Shalom. He emerged as a champion of justice. His own father David refused to punish Amnon, and it was Avshalom who took that upon himself as a response to David's inaction. After all, his own sister had been raped. Was that not a genuine concern for what's right and what is just? Clearly, Avshalom is a charismatic individual, clearly a leader in the making, and I believe that Yoav actually realizes as do many of the people of Israel, that in spite of the crime that he committed, Avshalom 
actually represents the best hope for the future. The widow and her family will be wiped out if that one remaining son is put to death. Let him therefore be restored so that the widow has a future and her husband has a memory that can be preserved. Let the people of Israel survive with the restoration of Avshalom, who may very well one day become king in David's place and hopefully wield authority for the good. That perhaps is what Yoav is thinking. That perhaps is what the wise woman is supporting with her parable. Of course, as it turns out, it will be much more complicated. But we do remember the succession line. Amnon was the crown prince, the first son born to Achinoam of Yisrael. The second son, Kilav, born to Avigail, the wife of Naval the Carmelite. And we hear nothing about Kilav in any of the biblical stories, presumably because he was not the right stuff for kingship, even though he may have been next in line. Perhaps it had to do with the fact that his mother, Avigail, had previously been married to Naval before she married David. Whatever the case may be, clearly Kilav is not in the line of succession. The next son on the list is none other than Avshalom. So of course he's the future. The text reports at this point, very, very tellingly, there was no handsomer person in Israel greater than Avshalom, the Hallel Ma'od, so incredibly praiseworthy. From his feet to his head, he had no blemish, and he had a head of hair, which was absolutely legendary. He would cut it from year to year because it was so heavy and so full and thick, and when he weighed it, it weighed 200 shekels by the, by the weights of the king. And then the text reports in verse number 27, almost parenthetically, but not at all, Avshalom had three sons and one daughter, and that one daughter's name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. Clearly, the rape of his sister rankled Avshalom to his core. And when he had his own daughter, he named her after his sister, whose life was effectively destroyed by the rape of Amnon, such that at least her memory might be preserved. So here we have a leader emerging, as it were, handsome, well-regarded, and also cognizant of the mission that he has to execute justice. Again, we're not sure at this point where the story might go, but I would suggest that the mention of, 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 of Shalom's beauty is an ominous note because Shalom will have a choice to make where he will take his leadership, his charisma, his beauty, his skill. What direction will he take it? Avshalom dwelt in Yerushalayim for two years, and he did not see the face of the king. He did not receive an audience. It has now been five years since he killed Amnon. It has now been seven years since Amnon raped Tamar. The time is passing. 
Avshalom requests of Yoav that he bring him in to see the king. Yoav is reluctant and Avshalom takes a step and burns down Yoav's field of barley as if to say, I'm serious, don't mess with me. And that seems to be part of Avshalom's character. He can be lethal and he can be direct. Why did you burn down my field? Avshalom explains, bring me before the king. What am I doing here in Jerusalem if I am driven from his presence? Yoav now approaches the king on behalf of Avshalom. Avshalom is summoned. He comes to the king and he bows down upon his face to the ground before the king. And the word king is stressed over and over in this verse. Yoav came before the king. And Yavshalom came before the king and he bowed before the king and the king kissed Avshalom. Vayishak HaMelech LaAvshalom, verse 33, as if we have been lulled into complacency to believe once again that things have been resolved, that reconciliation has been achieved, that Avshalom now recognizes the authority of his father, the king, the king, the king, the king. But in fact, we will see that Avshalom's story is just beginning. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.